now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 6 of the identification season, Just Science interviews Hilary DeLuce, an instructor for Tritech Forensics and author on latent print analysis. From soda cans and cigarette packs to animal carcasses and pressure cookers, an improvised explosive device is just that, improvised. One of the most difficult parts of IED identification after the explosion is figuring out what was part of the bomb itself. Hilary Deleuze spent 14 months in Iraq as a latent print examiner working on the remains of improvised explosive devices. Listen along as she discusses contextual bias, the difficulty of identifying fingerprints on improvised explosives, and the importance of partnering with other disciplines in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today, we are in beautiful San Antonio, Texas. And as anyone who's been listening to our series from IAI, uh, we're at the International Association for Identification. Our guest for you today on this episode uh, is Hilary Dalus, who is currently an instructor for TriTech Forensic, which has a uh, an office in North Carolina where RTI is, but she actually is based out of Kansas these days and a forensic specialist with Forensic Identification Services and author of two CRC press books. Two, absolutely. Uh, a Fundamentals of Fingerprint Analysis and the Fingerprint Analysis Laboratory Workbook. So you've literally written the books on fingerprint analysis. I have. Uh, and has a master's in forensic science from UC Davis. In addition to many other things, she's uh, deployed forward in Iraq as a latent print examiner. So we're going to be talking a little bit about her experience in that regard and her experience with developing latent prints from IEDs, which she has been talking about a little bit here at II. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate being here. From your perspective, latent prints obviously is a kind of a a big field, very important field, uh, a lot of changes going on in latent print identification. I mean, where do you think things are going to be heading yourself in terms of where the next steps are in developing ACEV and bringing in more quantitative methods and, and that kind of thing? What's your, what's your view on all of that controversy or what a discussion? Well, I've had this discussion with several people at this conference, and I feel like the discussion has continued for the past decade. Change is always a good thing. And I think a lot of us can uh, do for reminders um, about how great change can be. I'm one of those people that does not like change, but I have learned over the years that you really have to embrace change in order to grow as a person. We're going through that right now in forensics, and we always will go through that in forensics because forensics is a science, and science, you never get to the finish line. So you asked about the quantitation. I know a lot of people will be retiring when some of that <laughs> comes yeah, to fruition. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a, there's a real issue here, and I think you as somebody who's been writing and educating in this area would appreciate the ability to do statistical interpretation is not, it's a different kind of ability than fingerprint examination, 
And we haven't necessarily done a good job also saying, well, what do we mean by a quantitative examination or a statistical representation of, of latent prints or fingerprints? I think people should be a little bit wary. Absolutely. We're not comfortable with quantitation and as subjective scientists. And I think we're going to have to focus a lot on these meetings offering workshops in basic statistical understanding, basic statistical analysis. What is a likelihood ratio? What calculations are out there? But it's coming down the pipe. Nobody can stop it. It's coming. So we need to be ready for it. I'm actually in the second edition of my book, which will be available in October from CRC Press. I believe it's October. It's a complete rewrite. And it's only been five years since the publication of my first book. In that five years, so much has changed in the forensic profession, including what you also alluded to earlier with the nomenclature. We're talking a lot about nomenclature and standardization of nomenclature. This is all coming down the pipe, but it's, it's a step-by-step -step process. And I think we're doing a great job pushing in that direction, but we still have a lot of individuals and a huge percentage of our population as forensic scientists who are resistant to that change. When I was researching my new book, I ended up with over 50 single-spaced typed pages of notes. That's how much has changed in, in just latent That's print analysis. It's a yeah. lot of notes <laughs> just in the last five years. So we have to embrace the change. And I think we're doing a good job of starting, but it's time to ratchet up embracing that change. That's for sure. What kind of things are you emphasizing right now that are new? I mean, some of this stuff is emerging because of trying to standardize practice. Other things, we need to just go back and kind of do the fundamentals. For example, I know there's a lot of concern right now making sure that latent print examiners are doing a better job documenting how they're doing their, their work. How do you approach that with respect to when you're doing training and in your, in your books? I focus a lot on transparency and the end user, the end user being the juror. It's called forensic science because the word forensic really refers to anything that is applied to legal matters. Forensic anthropology, anthropology as it applies to legal matters. We can't work in a vacuum. We can't just live in our little bubbles in the laboratory without being cognizant of the fact that the end user is down the line, maybe possibly two years down the line, the end user is the juror, and they have to be able to understand what we did and why we did it. A lot of the why we did it part is lost on forensic scientists who perhaps have learned, hey, this is how we do this technique in this laboratory, because that's how we've always done it. Yeah, it's, a, it's oftentimes an apprenticed discipline, right? Absolutely. And as a result, the this is how we do it thing tends to be a little bit too ingrained, right? I think we're moving away from that, and you're seeing more and more training programs. I teach courtroom testimony. I also teach a courtroom testimony for fingerprint examiners, which is a little more specific to the latent print and 10 print disciplines. And in those courses, I emphasize transparency, and that's what the documentation is about. It's about saying, hey, this is what I did. But not only this is what I did and this was my result, but this is why I did it. Forensic scientists have to be able to go to court and explain their science to the layperson in a way that they can understand. And this is a skill that's not natural to most of us. It's something that's learned over time. If you can't explain superglue fuming to you know your cousin's neighbor's best friend, then maybe you need to reevaluate how you view your job. But I think we're, we're moving in that direction. We're moving in a, in a more scientifically rigorous direction. And there's more interest from the younger crowd coming up 
in actually understanding the science. And there's a thirst to truly understand the science behind what we do. And of course, the other aspect that's coming forward is things like blind verification and contextual bias from the rest of a case and things of that nature. And, and heck, I mean, we're getting into some of this IED issue. Well, the, the most famous case involving contextual bias was the Brandon Mayfield case, right? Yes. Which was basically yes. an IED case. Do you think blind verification should be required in all cases? And how should blind verification be implemented, especially when you have a small unit? I was going to say, I'm a bit spoiled. So it's easy for me to sit here and say that in my agency of two, that 100% blind verification is necessary and should be implemented today. It's easy for me to say because I have one other person, you know, who I can toss my stuff to. And here, I, uh, I may or may not have done this one. Because <laughs> that's not really blind, is it? If, if the not. other person knows it's you. As long as you aren't documenting your results and you're handing them the case and they're doing a complete independent analysis. However, I've never worked in a large agency where you have a backlog, where you have so many cases you can barely keep up. You're working latents from the time you sit down at your desk till the time you clock out at the end of the day. I can't speak for those agencies, but I can certainly understand how the implementation of a 100% blind verification would basically pull their progress to a screeching halt because they are, in a sense, working every single case twice. So as I haven't had experience with that type of agency, it's easy for me to say blind verification should be done 100%. It's absolutely necessary. I think in an ideal world, we, we would be able to do that. But in reality, with the caseloads that some of these agencies have, I don't think it's possible at this stage to implement that in a completely blind manner. You know, in some respects, again, uh, you, you've deployed with the military. Uh, the contextual bias issue there is as clean as it possibly could be, I assume, because it's, it's like stuff just gets dumped on you. <laughs> it does. Like, as long as it's extreme. It's like an extreme example of when you have no contextual bias whatsoever. Like, we what can't tell you anything. Here's a giant box, big plastic box full of dirty guns. Have fun, basically. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but you've also been on the other side of that in, in a small jurisdiction where you probably get all sorts of contextual information. Uh, do you feel like there was much difference in terms of how you approached or how you came to conclusions for one versus the other? That's a great question. I started out my professional life at a small city in California. And when I worked for that city, I was the only latent print examiner. I had to drive 20, 30 miles in any direction to another latent print examiner to get anything verified. As I was the only latent print examiner, I would have detectives show up at my office, lean over my shoulder and say, here, this is the guy. I know this guy. I've been here for 30 years. It's got to be this guy. This is his MO. I cannot honestly sit here and say that I have not been affected by cognitive bias of any kind, by con whether it's contextual or otherwise. Cognitive bias exists in every human being. Any human endeavor is going to be tainted by cognitive bias. But I think the key is understanding what it is, understanding that it exists, and understanding that we have our own biases we bring into every situation. And that's how we minimize it, training and being cognizant of the existence of bias. So I talk a lot about cognitive bias in, in my book. I'm by no means an expert in that subject. There's great research out there, though, that I've really relied on in, in my own 
casework as well. So one of the things that happened in the military in terms of uh, dealing with IEDs was the first thing that happened was getting bogged down, right? There was such a huge amount of caseload and and I think one of the reasons is the lack of contextual bias. <laughs> and the reason I say that is just like what you described, you know, the, the big box of guns, right? And so how do I know what to do? I don't know, I don't have any basis on which to prioritize the work. You know, I might have a say, well, I'm gonna go after certain parts of the gun because I'll get cleaner prints there than other places. But it's not like in a criminal case back in the States that some of that contextual information allows you to be much, much more efficient in your work. And you also are much more likely to be able to do a, is this Hillary's fingerprint, right? <laughs> kind of thing is, a, you know, I'm looking at a known to know one basically kind of impression. All that is important in terms of actually getting the work done. It is. Contextual information increases efficiency. There's no doubt about that. But it's more important to be thorough mm -hmm. than to be efficient in many cases. And of course, it depends on the context. Overseas, if, we, if I was given a, the example of the giant box of dirty guns, all you can do is take it step one through step 12 and also partnering with your sister subdisciplines. We have so many tools out there and we need to partner better with those other subdisciplines. So I would work closely with DNA. As you said, there are some areas on the gun that might be better than others. I would process those. DNA would swab the triggers and the textured grips. Then our firearms guys would take those dirty guns and do their firearms, whatever they do, mumbo jumbo magic. And um, <laughs> when it all came to no, all my amazing. It's only cousins, You only say that because of how amazing their work it is. It is amazing. Yeah. It mm -hmm. is amazing. I mean, we what they could do with the information they were given in the middle of a war zone was absolutely incredible. I mean, what we all accomplished was just amazing to me and amazes me today, even though I sat in the middle of it for 14 months. But when it comes down to it, you don't know where the important information is going to come from. It might come from that swab from the uh, trigger. It might come from the fingerprint. It might come from the tool marks that they analyze down the line. So uh, we all have to work together. And if we don't have any contextual information, you just do everything you can. You throw everything in the pot and you hope it tastes good at the end. <laughs> sure. When you're doing IED, I mean, the, somebody who might approach that for the first time, the biggest problem is this whole issue of how you identify which piece of evidence is most likely going to be of interest, right? Because it's a big mess. It is a big mess. Post-blast, yes. <laughs> yes, so walk us through that a little bit in terms of uh, looking at a post-blast event and identifying which uh, types of, of object might be of most interest in this regard. In my lecture yesterday, I discussed recovering fingerprints from improvised explosive devices, and I spent a good third of my lecture discussing, well, it sounds a little crazy, but how to construct an improvised explosive device. Sure. I'm not encouraging everyone to go out there and... Uh, you know, start making bombs in their basements. But it's important to know the components that make up the device in order to know what's important at the scene. This goes for not only fingerprint examiners, those who are processing the evidence, perhaps the technician in the lab, but also the crime scene responders who have to understand what items should be picked up and what items are not part of that bomb scene. So say you're at a bomb scene and you see batteries that look like they've been melted. Those batteries could very well have been there before the blast, or they likely were components of the improvised explosive device as a power source for the device. 
If you understand the components, then you know what to look for. Unfortunately, because it's called an improvised explosive device, it could be anything. And I was showing examples of soda cans, cigarette packs, gas cans. I've heard of um, animal carcasses being used as, as containers mm -hmm. to hold the explosive material. It can truly be anything. Pressure cookers, as we saw with the Sarnayev brothers in Boston in, in 2013. And now there's uh, package bombs. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. I received one of those uh, from my sister for my birthday, and I was kind of concerned that she sent me an IED. Right. I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? Is this for my work? And then I realized, oh, no, she wants me to cook with it. So, right. So, you know, in this business, sometimes <laughs> you yeah. misinterpret. It's just yes. a pressure cooker <laughs> yeah. in the end, it's, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've made some, I made some good uh, non-kosher carnitas in that. So okay. it worked out great. It's made more challenging identifying what is part of this bomb and what wasn't part of this bomb is made more challenging by the fact that it could be anything so it's important to know that if you see a washing machine timer a cell phone something that could be used as a switch as we call it something like a um, garage door opener even a motion detector can be used to set off an improvised explosive device so I wish I could narrow it down. Yeah. <laughs> but it is important to know how they're constructed to know what's relevant at a scene. Sure. Well, it's been a few years since I've been involved in it. But, of course, back when... How are uh, you well, involved uh, in it, yeah. exactly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, only, only doing scientific advice to uh, various military folks. Um, but at that time, of course, old cell phones were very common because they're just, they have a lot more power than newer cell phones. And the so flip phone. Cool. Yeah, yep. yeah. Really, really great for uh, making IEDs. Making an IED obviously is, is one thing to understand, uh, you know, how to pull that apart. But there are challenges even for the fingerprint examiner at that point, too, in terms of finding the latent print, developing it appropriately. Are traditional methods generally successful in uh, developing from IEDs? Traditional methods are successful, and it's important for people to know that because they might see a chunk of dirty, twisted metal and think, hey, I have a thousand pieces of evidence from this case. I know I'm not going to get anything on that dirty, twisted hunk of metal. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to process that. But you would be surprised. There have been several studies on, well, many studies um, in this area. And latent prints were recovered from the most unexpected places. Uh, one study, and, and I'm sorry I don't have the title on me now, but one study involved vehicle-borne IEDs. They placed fingerprints in known areas of the vehicle, inside and outside. They placed items inside the vehicle. They blew up the vehicle. It makes me very jealous because my graduate school project was not that cool. I didn't get sure. to blow anything up. I'm like, why didn't I think of this? So what they found was using the RUVIS, the Reflective Ultraviolet Imaging System, and traditional methods of superglue fuming and dye staining, they were able to recover identifiable latent prints from items inside the vehicle, from the vehicle itself. So whenever we would approach processing an explosives case, if you have an explosive, it's gonna be a high profile case, what we call a high profile case. All cases are important to the people who are victimized, but these cases tend to be given a higher priority. You're gonna process everything and never make assumptions because you never know what you're gonna see. And if you have that Ruvis, sitting mm -hmm. in a box in your lab and you've never used it, give me a call. Give TriDeck a call. <laughs> I'll come to you and show you how to use that sucker because it is a great tool for recovering fingerprints post-blast as well as, you know, in your daily processing. But you use standard techniques, standard sequential processing. Heck of a lot processing. easier than super glue fuming. Heck of a lot easier. <laughs> and 
it makes those super glue prints look amazing. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now, some of our international partners are much more oriented around vapor deposition, which I know is almost never used in the United States for IED fingerprint work. I don't know. Have you ever used vapor deposition? I have not. I've saved up in my piggy bank. I will never be able to afford one of those. But no, <laughs> I have not. I have not had the opportunity to do that. Okay. Well, walk us through a little bit elsewise in terms of there's the you know collection and, and trying to collect things that are almost certainly oriented around, you know, you mentioned batteries and switches and things of that nature, uh, using fairly traditional methods for development. What other things are you, do you cover with respect to important, important elements that, you know, might distinguish IED latent print work from other types of latent print work? I think the most important thing is safety, just understanding that even pre-blast, if you have something that doesn't look right, if you have a flashlight that was found in a park and it has a wire sticking out of it or tape wrapped around it, it's along the lines of if you see something, say something. If it doesn't look right, have someone x-ray it. Have someone with experience, EOD, bomb squad, take a look at that device because you never know when you could have a domestic incident. There have been incidents, flashlight IEDs. The flashlight on switch serves as the trigger the initiator for that IED. When someone go, picks up this innocuous looking flashlight, when we see a button, what do we want to do? We want right. to press the button. When you press the button, it goes boom. There may be a secondary device. So when you're unscrewing it, trying to take out the batteries after it's been rendered safe, you could detonate the device mm -hmm. using, because of a booby trap or something secondary. So just to be extremely cautious about the evidence you receive. And if you have any questions about safety, that's number one. One of the things I'd like to point out about that, too, and I, I hope there's an appreciation for it, I don't know. Two things about your, your local neighborhood bomb squad. <laughs> <laughs> One is is that the domestic bomb squads now, I think, are better equipped than they certainly were at the time of 9-11. Uh, you know, they're much more likely to have single-sided x-ray machines and other things that allow them to do imaging of these devices and do a really, really good job to help you deal with these safely. So you don't, you don't have to feel like whatever you've gotten laying around in the, in the forensic laboratory is the equipment you need to use. There, there, is a, there is specialized equipment for doing that kind of imaging and dealing with the issue. And the other thing I've noticed among the bomb squads is a much deeper appreciation for forensic science. Many of them spend some time learning about forensic science and forensic methods, and they take that very seriously. They almost look on themselves as both people who are doing IED tech and forensic science at the same time. You really take advantage of that out there. I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I really focused on domestic issues because most people here are here because they work in local, state, county, federal laboratories, most here in the U.S., I didn't focus on the battlefield forensics, but on the battlefield side, we did see that with the, the EOD techs out there. In the early to mid-2000s, we, and I say we, it wasn't me, I'm not going to take credit, somebody started training them, and they realized that whereas they used to detonate the bombs in place and move on, it would be more valuable to render them safe and give them to us at the forensics lab. Let us figure out who put that bomb there, who constructed that bomb. And we weren't doing that until very, very recently in the military. So likewise, we have to remember the value of these pieces of evidence and not just, you know, blow them up <laughs> for the sake of blowing them up. But yes, they're much more cognizant on the military side of the value of that forensic evidence. And mm -hmm. they really love being part of that CSI team. 
since sure. we're now the cool kids. We used to be the geeks of the <laughs> of the police department, but I'm, we're now I'm the cool kids. I'm going to be a nerd so. until the end of my days, I'm afraid. So I'm sorry that I did interrupt you because you were talking safety first. Yes, safety first. Also, uh, something that's important is collecting any explosive residues for trace evidence examiners and chemists so that they can try to determine what was the source of this explosive. Where did this explosive come from? Is this black powder that can be purchased you know, locally, or is this some kind of military-grade explosive? Again, that's voodoo magic I know nothing about, but that's very important to collect that residue. But to remember that some explosive residues are very sensitive to friction, and if you're not sure what something is, I wouldn't recommend scraping it off into a bindle. Um, but if yeah, you can not, collect... It isn't just gunshot residue. It's a very different kind of residue yes. oftentimes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would recommend collecting any residue you can because, again, the power in forensics is working together with all of our sister subdisciplines. The fingerprint side, we're not going to be the only ones adding forensic investigative value and to think about, hey, who else can help me with this? Are there tool marks on this device? Is there explosive residue on this device? So collecting the explosive residue, very, very important as well. It's interesting. I mean, it's been it's been up and down, I think, in terms of interest in this area. And I think that we're kind of seeing, unfortunately, a resurgence in, in being interested in IEDs, especially on the domestic side, the military, I think is now, in some respects, uh, when I was around, when you were you know, in Iraq, uh, there was JIDO, which the Joint yes. Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization, which spent a lot of money trying to figure out how to do IEDs really well, how to, how to counter IEDs in a lot of different ways. And I'm not sure where the military is these days, but I think on the domestic side, there's a lot more concern because, you know, you have active shooters, you have the Boston bombing, you have other things going on where people are like, okay, I, I might need to worry about this now. We see so many lone wolf terrorists in the in the news they talk about lone wolf terrorists and the connection with social media people are scared people are afraid that this can happen in their towns and cities and we're you know we used to think that these events these domestic terror events would be confined to large cities such as Los Angeles or New York or Oklahoma City it can happen anywhere so it's important for forensic scientists who might work in a small town to understand that lone wolf terrorists, it can be really anyone who's self-radicalized online or through Al-Qaeda publications such as the magazine Inspire, which gives you, you know, recipes for... Very easy to get for, Inspire yes, and yeah, yes. download it all. Yeah. Easy mm-hmm. to get a handle on, on these publications. So it's important to remember that it can affect any of us, not to end on, continue on a fearful note. Well, no, no, <laughs> I think the the issue for forensic scientists is exactly that. You know, we're, it isn't something that most forensic science organizations are gonna do on a daily basis. There are some that will. You know, some of the major urban departments will see an awful lot of uh, improvised explosive, you know, pipe bombs and all the rest of it on a reasonably constant basis. But the fact is that I think a fairly broad range of, of organizations need to be cognizant of it and have some training in the area. I spoke with a gentleman from the Israeli National Police who said, this is our everyday evidence, this is what we get. He's giving me stories of of some of the incredible forensic evidence they've recovered, such as when wires are stripped using an individual's teeth, they would swab those wires, and they were getting full DNA profiles. So, I mean, (laughs) I don't have to deal with this on a regular basis. I'm at home with my three-year-old now eating Kansas City barbecue, having a great old time. But the agencies that are out there 
on the streets every day, they need to be cognizant of, of the types of evidence that they might see on a regular basis. I mean, look at, you know. Well, the INP obviously is very, very good at all that sort of thing. I remember the, some of their stories because they, it's a lesson about residue too, because, you know, the bomb makers love their own little secret recipes. You know, this guy likes to put cumin into his, into his yes. device and all these other weird stuff. And like, look, man, I don't know. I, you know, you might be bad, you know, whatever terrorist, but I don't think the cumin is actually helping. <laughs> You know, um, depends on whether or not you like cumin. So. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's leaving some residue there. Uh, but 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 again, I mean that tells you something in terms of from a forensic scientist perspective. When you're dealing with an IED, the residue oftentimes will be very unique to that particular device and will help you in the investigation and then in the prosecution later on. Absolutely, and we didn't even talk about the electrical component side. That's an sure. entire. That's yeah, more voodoo magic I'm not aware up to date on. But there's so many things we can do to fight and combat terrorism, and they're not terribly savvy, either at home or abroad. Sure. Some of our best evidence is the tape they use to construct the devices. Sure. sure I mean, absolutely. I use duct tape to fix everything. And guess what? It's a great <laughs> material for holding a switch on a uh, on mm -hmm. a pipe. So sure. Well, we actually had a different podcast. Now we should link to it off of this podcast page on uh, the Atlanta bomber. We actually did a uh, a case study looking at the because it took a couple of years before the Atlanta bomber was actually arrested after the uh, the Olympic bombing, and uh, and so uh, we actually did an entire podcast on the forensic science oriented around that bomb. So after you hear Hillary, you, you can go and listen to that one because that was a really, really fun podcast and a, an, an incredible story. So, but I appreciate Hillary Deleuze. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And thank you listeners for tuning in or listening in today. Please go on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Give us five big fancy stars. Tell everyone about how much you loved listening to Just Science and tell your friends and colleagues to, to tune in and download as well. Uh, and thank you for listening today. Next week, Just Science interviews Carlos Gutierrez about forensic microanthropology, a new field of forensic science. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.